Hey, I'm Chrissy Clark. Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour. We're going to do something a little different on this episode of the podcast. As you know, if you're a regular listener, usually our episodes are highly produced, carefully edited labors of love. They're things that take months to report and put together. It's work that we love to do. It also takes a long time to uncover these stories and get them right. And so while we're working on the next batch of those episodes to bring to you, we thought we'd do something a little more informal in the meantime, a sort of reporter's notebook, a kind of glimpse behind the scenes. So today we're going to do that. We're going to answer some of your questions about the stories that we've brought you so far this season. And then, because regulations have been in the news so much in the last week or so, we also wanted to give you some helpful context for what you've been hearing in the headlines, like that moment when President Trump took a pair of big gold scissors and literally cut a piece of red tape. Okay. One, two, three. Yes, so we have lots of thoughts about that. But first, let's talk about opioids and the amazing piece that Caitlin Esch reported for last episode about that one regulatory sentence in a piece of government-approved fine print that arguably helped spark the opioid epidemic. Caitlin is in the studio with me right now. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. Hello. And your story, of course, inspired a lot of comments and questions from people who'd listened to the podcast. So I wanted to get your take on some of them. This first one came through Facebook. It's from a person named Linda. And she writes, Can some portion of the opioid epidemic be attributed to patients being told that they should have zero pain after a surgical procedure? Nurses have been told for the past 20 years or so that pain level should be less than 3 on a 1 to 10 scale. Pain perception varies widely from person to person. It's not only impossible, it's unrealistic to expect no pain after a surgical procedure. So what do you what do you make of that comment, Caitlin? This is an interesting one. She sounds like she might be a nurse. In the mid-90s, a broad coalition of physicians and pain experts and others started talking about taking pain more seriously. There was one group, the American Pain Society, and that's a group of scientists, clinicians, and others that are dedicated to raising awareness about pain and influencing public policy. They also receive funding from the pharmaceutical industry. This group, the American Pain Society, introduced the idea of treating pain as a fifth vital sign. They were, I think, the first group to articulate it as as a phrase, as a concept. And then other groups started adopting it. That's an interesting, just that phrase even. Right. Like, what does that mean, a fifth vital sign? Well, there are four other vital signs. And the thing that they have in common is that they can be measured. So heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, temperature. Pain is different because it's totally subjective. Right. So it, it gets tricky there. Um, but this this idea was gaining traction. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Veterans Health Administration adopted it. The Joint Commission, and the Joint Commission is an organization that accredits hospitals and healthcare facilities. The Joint Commission created actual standards for assessing and treating pain. Um, prescribing opioids was a part of that. And, and this movement was sort of in recognition that pain was undertreated. People were dying in pain. The idea kind of grew out of the patients' rights movement and the hospice movement. Hmm. Um, so as a result, in the 90s, opioids were starting to lose their stigma and, and doctors were prescribing more. 
we interviewed several doctors for our podcast, and they were educated during the 90s. Nat Katz, a neurologist and a pain management physician, he remembered learning that pain soaks up the euphoria. So if you were very in, if you were in a lot of pain and you took a painkiller, you didn't necessarily get high the way someone who would be abusing a painkiller would get. And does he still think that that is true? Like, is that still something that people are taught? No, I, th- I think that actually now there's a recognition that people with pain, chronic pain, any kind of pain, There's a lot of overlap between those people and people who get addicted or abuse opioids. It's not, you know, these two separate groups. There's a lot more overlap. But that all sort of goes to paint this larger context for it as important as this one sentence that we focused on in the last episode, as important as that one sentence might be, it was also in this broader culture that was going on that also sort of had an evolving understanding of how opioids fit into kind of pain and pain management. Yeah, and a lot has changed over the past 15, 20 years. The American Medical Association has dropped the whole pain as a fifth vital sign concept. The Joint Commission has reassessed its own standards and guidelines for treating pain. So addiction and abuse are once again at the at the forefront. Watch out for this. This happens. Moving on to some other listener comments that we've gotten. One thing that's been really amazing is that listeners have been sharing a lot of their own personal stories or stories about their family around overdose and addiction. And so here's one of those. This is someone named Claudia who wrote on our website, quote, I lost my brother in 2004 to an overdose of oxy and morphine. He was 47 years old. I ended up adopting his three girls, which is just really sad story. She goes on to say that if Purdue, the company that makes OxyContin, had made their drugs less easy to crush and snort, she wonders if her brother wouldn't have died. Yeah, Claudia is bringing up this idea of abuse deterrent formulations, which is something that a lot of drug companies are trying to do right now. And Purdue did come out with a new formulation of OxyContin in 2010 that was less easy to crush and snort or inject. And as a result, the street value dropped and people moved on to other products. So the notion of an abuse deterrent formulation is very interesting and regulations are sort of trying to keep up. Um, In 2015, the FDA released some guidance for drug companies saying that if they want to make claims that their drug is an abuse deterrent drug, meaning it's less easy to abuse, they need to have some evidence of that. But the big question is still unanswered. Do these abuse deterrent formulations actually lead to less abuse on the street or in the community Or, for example, do practices just evolve to get around those abuse deterrent formulations? Right. And how do you actually make something more difficult to inject or more difficult to snort? I mean, I know you're not a chemist, but like, are there, what's the general approach? Well, with OxyContin's reformulation that came out in 2010, they made it harder to grind up. So it it was in chunks. Huh. And then if So something about like the chemical yeah, makeup. The it actual was just, physical yeah. Interesting. And then also if you added liquid to it to inject it, 
it would turn to jelly, which would make it harder to inject. Huh. So there are these physical things that you can do. It's an emerging field right now, and regulators are attempting to keep up with the technology. So listeners also had questions about some of the lawsuits that are underway against Purdue, um, the maker of OxyContin. Someone named Spencer wrote in to say, I heard that several states and communities are going to sue the makers of opioid drugs. Last I knew, these companies made a legal drug and it was up to the doctors to control its use through prescriptions. It isn't the manufacturer's fault there was and sometimes still is not a way to restrict the abuse of these drugs by getting multiple scripts from doctor shopping. So basically he's saying, why why are you blaming the pharmaceutical companies, they they did things that were government approved. Um, it's really the doctor's fault or sort of abuse that goes beyond them. And then somebody named Kathy wrote, referring to the to OxyContin and the makers of OxyContin, will they be sued or held accountable like the tobacco industry finally was? So help us understand what's going on with these lawsuits, Caitlin, and and kind of do they have parallels to the tobacco industry? Yeah, so more than 100 cities, counties, and states are currently suing opioid makers and distributors for their role in the opioid epidemic. And a lot of these lawsuits focus on the way that drugs were marketed to downplay the risks of abuse and addiction. So lawyers for local governments allege that deceptive marketing practices convinced doctors to overprescribe opioids uh, because they thought that the risk of addiction, abuse, and overdose was less somehow. So it'll be interesting to see the way these lawsuits play out. Uh, one of the lawyers who's representing local governments and lawsuits against the pharmaceutical industry used to be the attorney general of Mississippi, where he filed the first state lawsuit against tobacco companies. And that led to a multi-billion dollar settlement. Huh. So some say that opioid makers are borrowing a page from Big Tobacco, and so the response will be similar. And in some cases, the, it's the same individuals suing who right. were the ones who sued Big Tobacco. Yeah, and there are some parallels. I mean, some have pointed out that the tobacco industry lied about public health risks and the addictiveness of cigarettes. Now many local governments are arguing that the pharmaceutical industry downplayed the dangers of opioids. The difference, of course, is that tobacco does not have any medical use and opioids do. Uh, but there's another industry parallel you could draw. Lawsuits against gun manufacturers have failed in the past because judges ruled you cannot hold a company responsible for how someone else illegally uses their product. Uh, this is the, like, guns don't kill people, people kill people idea. Right, right. So, like, opioids don't kill people. Using it the wrong way kills people. Right. Although a lot of people would argue you can use it the right way and still, you know, become addicted right. or, or die of an overdose. In our investigation, we reviewed court documents from a case that the Attorney General of West Virginia brought against Purdue Pharma in 2001. Uh, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, argued that the state shouldn't be able to recover for harm to individuals caused by, quote, these individuals' own criminal acts. I'll just read from it. Allowing such a recovery would be as absurd as allowing the state to recover from General Motors for the costs resulting from a driver's deliberate decision to drive his Chevy off a cliff. So it's all this question of, like, who ultimately bears the responsibility? Hey, 
Okay, so now the tables turn. Yes, and I'm going to ask you some questions about earlier episodes in right. this season. The first three, of course, were about peanut butter. Yes. Uh, the, tri- the peanut butter trilogy, and you used peanut butter to explain how regulations work. So people have been tweeting us pictures of their peanut butter jars. And here's one. Uh, it says, Jif to go natural, creamy peanut butter spread, 90% peanuts. And so the question comes uh, via Twitter from Van Heist. And Van Heist says, what's the regulatory ruling? 90% peanuts was called peanut butter spread. W-U-W-T, which stands for what's up with that? Ah, good. I'm <laughs> glad you translated that for me because I would not have known that millennial acronym. <laughs> Um, Nor I. (laughs) um, So, yes, good question. What is up with that? So it's a little bit complicated, but bear with me. So as you will remember, in order for something to be called peanut butter, according to the FDA, it has to have 90% peanuts. And this peanut butter does indeed have 90% peanuts. So why is it called peanut butter spread? That's because it has the wrong kind of oil in it. It doesn't have hydrogenated oil. It has palm oil as its ingredient, as its stabilizer to help make it more smooth and more spreadable. And when the FDA regulated the definition of peanut butter, not only did they specify the peanut content, like how many peanuts you had to have, but they specified the kind of oil that you had to use in order for it to qualify as peanut butter. And so they listed a few, either peanut oil or hydrogenated vegetable oil of some sort. And palm oil, it was not included in that list. So that's why this still doesn't get the coveted peanut butter mantle. It has to be called peanut butter spread. So even though it's natural oil, not hydrogenated, it doesn't get to be peanut butter. Yes. And that's, you know, that's what some people point to as kind of what could be considered the absurdity of food standards is that they are so specific that then something like this kind of slips through the cracks that like, well, why wouldn't palm oil be allowed in there? But as we know, it's because there, w- there was not a palm oil lobby back <laughs> when, the, when the regulation was being fought over back in the 50s and 60s. If there had been, they probably would have gotten or would have tried to get palm oil listed in those ingredients. But the things that people were focused on back then were the manufacturers who were using hydrogenated oils, but nobody was really thinking about palm oil. So if you want one of those really spreadable, non-separated peanut butters... you got to put something in it to stabilize it. it. You can't put hydrogenated oil in it. And if you want to be natural, you can't put hydrogenated oil in. Exactly. So it's all about how they get to brand themselves. Do you want natural or do you want peanut butter? Yes. Yes. And so the folks who are making this particular peanut butter decided, well, maybe it's useful. We, we want to be able to call ourselves natural, and maybe it's not such a big deal that, we are, that we're peanut butter spread rather than peanut butter because maybe people won't even notice the difference. Right. You could call peanut butter natural if it has 90% peanuts and no oil, of, no, no added That's oil of any, any sort. Yeah. And then it's just like mother used to make, as they say. <laughs>
Okay, and then we wanted to talk a little bit about this. Let's cut the red tape. Let's set free our dreams, and yes, let's make America great again. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by getting rid of a lot of unnecessary regulation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. So this is um, this is a bit of a cut from President Trump's speech uh, from mid-December, where he's talking about regulations. And it's interesting because regulations have kind of for the last several months been this stealth issue in Washington. You know, it's something that we've known was a big subject of debate on Capitol Hill and a big subject of concern for uh, President Trump. But we weren't hearing that much about it. Now it's becoming more in the public eye. And the speech generated a lot of strong reactions from people. We've been talking about it also ourselves in the office. Yeah. What were your reactions? What struck you most about President Trump's speech? Well, one was just the visuals, right? Do you remember the those stage props that mm-hmm. he had? So he, he was standing in between these two stacks of paper. And on one side, the stack goes up to like his knees. It's kind of short. And it has a sign hanging from it that says 1960. In 1960, there were approximately 20,000 pages in the Code of Federal Regulations. And then there's this other stack on the other side of President Trump that's taller than he is. It's a giant. And that one has a sign that says today. Today, there are over 185,000 pages. And then there's this big piece of red ribbon, or maybe it symbolizes red tape, that's hanging between the two stacks of paper. We're going to cut a ribbon because we're getting back below the 1960 level and we'll be there fairly quickly. Wow. Below that level. Yeah. So one thing that's important to point out is that, yes, the Trump administration is definitely in a deregulatory mood. But we should be clear that his assertion that they're going to get to 1960s levels of regulations, not even his own regulatory czar who works in his White House thinks that that would be possible without legislation. And that's because some of the big reasons that the number of regulations shot up after the 1960s was because in the 1970s, we passed a bunch of landmark environmental legislation like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. um, And those are the source of a lot of the regulations that made the Code of Federal Regulations grow. Those are laws that the majority of Americans are in favor of. So there is a deep partisan divide. It's definitely more Democrats than Republicans who are in favor of them. But when you look on whole, more Americans want these laws than don't want them. So you would have to repeal those sorts of laws to shrink the code of federal regulation to any significant amount. And then there's just this whole issue of how many regulations Trump has actually cut during his time in office. Right. Um, you know, he has said in the history of our country, no president during their entire term has cut more than we've cut. And then and then he actually in this press conference, he um, he had some numbers that he threw out. Within our first 11 months, we canceled or delayed over one thousand five hundred planned regulatory actions more than any previous president by far. So 1,500 sounds like a lot. Can you break that down? Yes. Uh, And actually, Bloomberg did a great analysis recently of these 1,500 regulatory actions. 1,500 sounds 
like a lot. But as the Bloomberg reporters point out, when it comes to actual federal regulations that have actually been taken off the books, it's a much smaller number. It's still significant, but that's more like a couple dozen or so, not 1,500. And many of the regulations that have actually been taken off the books were finalized very recently, most in the waning days of the Obama administration. And then they were repealed under something called the Congressional Review Act. Which we actually have an upcoming episode all about. Yes. And basically, the Congressional Review Act is this obscure law with a fascinating backstory that we're going to get into in the upcoming episode that involves this big power struggle between Congress and the executive branch. It also involves a bunch of used car salesmen and this very crazy coincidence that goes back to a cocktail party in Kenya in the 1960s. But what's also interesting is that until this year, the Congressional Review Act had only been used once in the history of its existence. And the way that it works is that it gives Congress the ability to fast track repeals of federal regulations for this limited window of time soon after they've been passed. And since President Trump has taken office, Congress has used the law to kill 15 rules, 15 regulations. These are repeals that the president had to sign off on. And what kinds of regulations are they, the ones that have already been killed with this Congressional Review Act? So they covered a wide range of issues. One rule would have prevented your personal data from being sold by Internet service providers. Another rule would have restricted the sale of guns to people with certain mental illnesses. Another would have put tighter limits on the runoff from coal mines. So those are a few of the regulations that have actually been taken off the books already. And then there are other really high-profile regulations that are in the process of being taken off the books. So... The FCC, of course, just voted to get rid of net neutrality rules that would have required Internet service providers to treat all web traffic equally so that they couldn't charge more for certain content or block certain content on the Internet. So that rule will probably be taken off the books soon, though there are lawsuits that are trying to stop that from happening. And then the Trump administration is also in the process of trying to undo things like the clean power plan that would regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. That was seen as a key step in fighting climate change under the Obama administration. But industries like coal mining and groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have pushed back against it. And again, the repeal of of those things are still underway. There's going to be lawsuits to try to keep the rules in place. So none of that is a done deal. So back to what Trump was saying in his speech, you're saying that just a couple dozen rules have actually been taken off the books. So what is this 1,500 number referring to? Right. So a lot of the things included in that number are actually proposed rules that hadn't made their way onto the books yet. Some had already been effectively shelved before Trump took office. Some are proposed regulations that the Trump administration has delayed but not fully gotten rid of yet. Um, And then the White House also included things in this deregulatory tally like reducing paperwork burdens and withdrawing certain guidance documents that federal agencies put out. So it's not like 1,500 federal regulations have been wiped from the books already. Um, And part of that is because it actually takes a lot to undo most regulations. You have to go through a process. You have to announce that you want to take it off the books. You have to ask for, for comment. You have to consider those comments and justify that you have the technical grounds for why you're taking a why why you're undoing a regulation. So 
It's not as easy as just taking out an eraser. Right, not at all. And then, Caitlin, there's one other thing that I just need to say about President Trump's speech, because it was so striking to me, is just that visual that he has, you know, the, the props that he has with the two piles of regulations, regulations. from, from pre-1960. Yes, and, and sort of this these, these paperwork piles, that is this well-worn trope and this well-worn image that we see again and again. It's amazing. We've been looking at some some debates about regulations that go back to the early 1970s. And literally, you have some staffer also having to drag in a bunch of piles of paper and set them up for a press conference on a stack behind whoever's talking so that then they can use them as their visual aids to say, look how many regulations we used to have or look how many regulations we have. Like, It's become a real cliche at this point. We're actually going to hear a story upcoming in the season where we meet a guy, a congressman, who was the first guy, as far as we can tell, to use this prop, these stacks of paper to represent federal regulations. And you may be surprised he was actually a Democrat. And that is just one of the things that we have in store for you in the next half of this season. Here's a little teaser of some of the other stories that we're going to be telling you. I didn't do anything to hurt anybody. The regulations began to come out, and all of a sudden it was clear who was going to pay. Sort of the sommelier of sexual pig odor. When we were kids, we just got on a bicycle, and if we fell and tore our knee off, that was what happened. Now you got laws about everything. A lot of these regulations happen without anybody paying a lot of attention except for the agencies that are passing them. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Avoiding disease, avoiding injury. Uh, regulations are the, are the conscience of a capitalistic society. You have to... Who is uh, going to be disadvantaged? Capitalism we are clear, failed, but it's going to be I don't want the federal government in my bedroom. Do you? All that and more in 2018. And we did want to put in a final ask if you have been moved by the uncertain hour, learned things in the episodes that we bring you. It takes a lot to put them together, and we could really use your support. You can donate at uncertainhour.org. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. 